If you're new with us, we are studying Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Only a couple more weeks left in this series. And we come really to the, the climactic passage, arguably in the whole book, as Paul has been talking about weaknesses. And as we said last week, weaknesses are not sins. Um, Paul gives several categories of weaknesses in, in verse 10 here. Um, but these are uh, hardships, calamities, uh, you know, the thorn in the flesh that he speaks of, these weaknesses um, that God, sh- he, he manifests his grace and his power uh, in and through us in these moments, and he receives the glory for it. And so we're really at the heartbeat of, of the letter, and so let's pray and ask for the Lord to, to open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. Father, <clears throat> thank you for your word. You reveal your truth to us in your word, your truth about yourself, truth about our condition, truth about our need for Jesus. Grateful that the Bible shows us our Savior. As it's been said, the Bible is the cradle wherein the the Christ is laid. Help us today to see our Savior, that his grace really is enough, and that he he really does use people like us for his glory. Encourage the hearts of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. One writer tells the following story. I may have shared this story before, but it fits our text so well. I'm going to share it again. I actually don't know when I shared it because I'm getting old. Uh, But this is what he recounts. Many years ago, a famous violinist died, and he left no family members behind. And so he had no one that he could give his Stradivarius violin to. And so an auction was convened in part to sell this expensive instrument. It was eventually purchased by another violinist who paid a sum of $20,000 for this violin, a sizable sum in its day. And shortly thereafter, the new owner of the Stradivarius announced that he would play a concert on this expensive violin. And so, as the concert hall filled to capacity, the people were waiting in breathless anticipation. At just the right moment, he walked out on stage with nothing but his violin and began to play Paganini. He held his audience spellbound. His technique was flawless. His tone exquisite. And at the conclusion of the final note, the audience instantaneously jumped to their feet and roared with applause. He bowed and simply walked off the stage. A few seconds later, with the applause still thundering, he walked back on stage, took his violin by its neck, raised it up over his head, and smashed it on a nearby piano bench, shattering it into pieces. And then he walked off the stage. The audience was horrified. They were stunned. And a moment later, a second man walked out onto the stage and stood before the people. And they became very quiet as he spoke these words. The violin on which the maestro has just performed his first selection, the same violin that he just destroyed, was but a $20 violin. He will now perform the rest of the concert on the $20,000 Stradivarius. And what was the point he was trying to make? Well, you know it. The genius is never in the power of the violin. It's always in the power of the violinist. At best, you and I are like these $20 violins, but beautiful music is played when God takes us up into his hands. God will have no competitors. And for this reason, he manifests his power through weak instruments like us. So that when something good happens, only he can get the glory for it. It's the story of the Bible. Moses, a very unlikely figure, 
with defective speech is used to be the great leader of Israel, or Gideon, the least of his tribe, or Elijah, who comes from out of nowhere, or the 12 disciples, those knuckleheads. We get to the end of Hebrews 11, after recounting all the heroes of the faith, the writer says, these were made strong out of weakness. So today, church, we rest not on our abilities, but on God's mighty power. That's the principle Paul's been driving at in 2 Corinthians. Divine power displayed through human weakness. Last week we looked at these weaknesses, his sufferings, his stress, and this story of being dropped out of a window in a basket as it displayed the power and grace of God. And now Paul adds to his list of credentials, as he's been arguing, if you've not been with us, against these super apostles who says, says that Paul doesn't have proper credentials, he's not a real apostle, and so on. So he's got to roll out a bit of his resume, though he's very reluctant to do it. But as he does it, he shines the light not on his success, not on his abilities, but on his weakness. And he does recount one marvelous experience that's, that is so sublime that he doesn't have words to convey the reality of it. And that is, as he talks about being caught up into the third heaven. But, he says, the purpose of that heavenly experience was to actually show him where his real power came from. Not in this heavenly experience, but in this thorn in the flesh. The agonies of the thorn in Paul's flesh made him rely on Jesus' grace in power. And from this text, we learn how God uses suffering in our lives, that thorn in your flesh, and how God manifests his grace and power in and through us as we look to him. So let's look at this text in two parts briefly. First of all, Paul's heavenly experience, and then secondly, God's divine purposes in Paul's suffering. First, the experience in verse one, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. Paul thinks this is very unnecessary and very awkward. And so he says there's nothing really gained from it. He's doing it just for the sake of the Corinthians so that they will not be led astray by the false teachers that were saying Paul wasn't qualified to be an apostle. And so he adds to the list now visions and revelations. And you notice it's in the plural, which indicates that Paul had multiple encounters, multiple visions, revelations, but now he lists one that was especially memorable. But he's very reluctant, again, to talk about it, and so he speaks of it in the third person. When he says, I know a man. And you get down in the text later, and you see that this was Paul himself, but he's speaking in the third person. The false teachers loved private experiences. They boasted in their private experience. Paul doesn't speak much of his at all. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of this dramatic encounter of being caught up into the third heaven. But he just mentions it, and then he quickly transitions back to his theme of weakness. And so he, he distanced himself from it. And he doesn't think this story that he's about to tell is the, is the thing that actually qualifies him for ministry. You know, what qualifies Paul for ministry is what qualifies anyone for ministry, maturity and the message of the gospel. Paul will say later down in verse 6, you should evaluate me by what you see of me in public. Watch my life watch my teaching. Nevertheless, he mentions it, but the, the experience is not the focus for Paul. And this experience, he says in verse 2, uh, happened 14 years ago. That would have been very early in Paul's life. That would have been sometime around uh, 10 years after the crucifixion. And the experience was so otherworldly 
that Paul says, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. Only God knows. He says in verse 2, he was caught up into the third heaven. And then he calls that in verse 3, paradise. That is, Paul was brought into the very presence of God. You would wonder, how would he not be incinerated by the glory of God? And it's only because we're safe in Christ. We're not safe outside of Christ. But Paul got caught up there into this, he calls it the third heaven in the Jewish way of thinking. The first heaven was the atmosphere we live in. The second was the sky, the sun, stars, and so on. Third heaven was God's presence. And you recall the thief on the cross, as he cried out to Jesus, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. They, you, you will be in the presence of God. And he says, I was caught up. That it, he was snatched up. He got a divine transport into heaven. But it was so disorienting that he doesn't know if it's in the body or out of the body. Which, by the way, is just a side note, this reinforces the idea, I think, of the intermediate state of a Christian. We looked at back in chapter 5, that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Our soul, spirit goes to be with the Lord, our body's in the ground, we wait for final resurrection when body and soul are united and we're raised. That's our ultimate hope. But Paul seems to think, you know, that, uh, he, he could have went there without his body. And so we're not, as the materialists teach, just flesh. There's something special about us. That's, being, that's part of being made in the image of God. So he says, I was caught up there into this third heaven, and I heard stuff that cannot be repeated. It was just for Paul. It was not for public dissemination. What an experience this would be. There's not even a close equivalent to it. Hawaii, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon. And he said he heard stuff, but he can't relay it. You know how hard that would be? Like, imagine you're out mowing your yard, and, you know, six black SUVs come over and say, please, sir, come with me. Please, ma'am, come with me. And they take you to a helicopter, and they fly you to D.C., and you get out, and they take you to the Oval Office, and the president tells you everything about China, North Korea, Russia. But you know what? Is Putin got a shirt on? You know, like, just all the inside information. And then he says, but you can't tell anybody. That would be so wild. And that it, it pales in comparison to being transported to the third heaven, <laughs> to the presence of God, and hearing stuff, but you can't relay it. Hey, Paul, you were late for work, man. What happened? I went to heaven. Sorry. Yeah, he, he can't even share that. So he says here, he, he got a, a, really a foretaste of heaven. And I think it's significant that this event happened early in Paul's life because he was going to suffer so much. Like this, this vision would have, you know, motivated faithfulness just the way future glory for us propels us to be faithful in our trials. So he goes on, he says in, in verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on behalf, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. So he's back here to this theme. So he says in verse 6, though I, I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I'd be speaking the truth. And so Paul's not going to go on and on about it, but he's saying it really did happen. You see how opposite Paul is with modern day Christianity. If anyone had any kind of experience like this, they would definitely write a book, right? Of how I got caught up into the third heaven. And then a sequel, how you can visit heaven too. 
But Paul's like, he barely even mentions it, doesn't want to mention it, and keeps himself at a distance, speaking of himself in the third person. We don't, we don't need someone's experience to validate heaven. We have a book about heaven called the Bible. Right? We don't need a supplement. We've got everything we need. And while this experience was awesome, it was remarkable, Paul doesn't put his focus on this private experience. It's wonderful to have personal, private experiences with God, but the Christian life involves so much more than that. Living our lives faithfully in community. And so we learn from Paul here to, to be grateful when God gives you these moments with him that are extraordinary, even though they're not probably going to be this kind of extraordinary. But they shouldn't make us boastful. If, if God does something to you, you should be grateful, but not boastful. And it's very dangerous to put too much emphasis on private experience for these reasons. One, you could be tempted to live in the past, wanting to relive it, but you don't get the idea that Paul was chasing the same experience. Or these experiences can lead to pride, as Paul points out in, the, in verse 7. Or you could have an over-reliance on experience. If you have to have a dramatic experience every day to be faithful, then, then you're missing kind of the point of this passage. What we need every day to be faithful is the sufficient grace of Jesus. And that's what we have. Nor should we think that experiences are the same thing as maturity. Like, we don't ask potential leaders, hey, pal, have you ever been caught up into the third heaven? No, you're out. Have you ever drop kicked a demon out of someone? Right? <laughs> Has an angel ever picked you up in the Uber? No? Well, you're out. No, that's not the focus. The focus is on character and message, life, doctrine. So he mentions it, but now he quickly gets back to the focus, and that is, his credentials is really in the grace of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done through his weakness. So let's look at God's divine purpose for Paul's suffering in hopes that we can learn about our own and, and be encouraged by that. So Paul mentioned in, in verses 7 and following, first the pain of the thorn and then God's purposes for the thorn. The pain is real. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, when Paul says thorn, he's not talking about a splinter. That's how we, we might think about it. The Greek word he uses is actually the same word used for a stake. So you're looking at something here that was not a mere annoyance. Sometimes we use that phrase like, you know, that, that person's a thorn in my flesh. The agony of this thorn corresponded to the glory of the heavenly experience. It was prolonged 14 years ago. He's still dealing with it. And it was severe. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it is. And I think that's good. Because we can now apply it to many situations, can't we? And he doesn't want to go on and on about his personal life too much. There are so many options. I've just mentioned some of them, not just because they're interesting, but because I think you'll see how you get included, because this is a, a wide range of application for having a thorn in the flesh. You really could put, it, put them in three categories, a physical thorn, physical mental, uh, a relational thorn, or what we might call a spiritual thorn. So physically, many have argued that Paul had the following uh, conditions. 
Maybe it was malaria. That was a real problem, especially as he went up into Turkey. It could have been severe headaches or earaches. That's the church father Tertullian's view. Others have argued for epilepsy. Others have argued, based upon the letters of the New Testament, that Paul, like Moses, could have had a defective uh, speech issue, which he found frustrating and it could have been embarrassing and would have evoked a lot of criticism, as the false apostles were doing to Paul. Or, related to that, it could have been disfigurement, or, based on the book of Galatians, it could have been eye problems. Others have suggested that because he got into, caught into the third heaven, he had a nervous system problem now. A relational thorn, that would be the opponents here, these messengers, as he calls them here, a messenger of Satan. So someone in the church, opponents, this was Chrysostom, another church father's view. Or a spiritual problem, people have saw it like the reformers thought that this was a reference to temptation. Um, and perhaps even sexual temptation. Others have said, no, this was his agony over the Jewish rejection of the gospel. Now, if I had to pick, I would lean toward the physical categories because he says it's in the flesh, and he prays that the Lord would remove it. Not a person, but a, a, a thing. And because it was given 14 years earlier, it wouldn't seem to be his opponents because these opponents in Corinth didn't exist yet. But the fact that he doesn't tell us, again, is a good thing because we can relate to whatever it was. If Paul would have limited this to, say, headaches, then you know what people would have done with that. Oh, headaches are in the Bible. I got headaches. Me and Paul, we're together, right? Who cares about your back problem? Like, <laughs> I got a holy headache. No, whatever it was, it was prolonged and it was severe. And that is remarkable. The most effective, fruitful, missionary, church planter ministered in prolonged pain. Now, what was the purposes for this suffering? Verse 7, very obviously, suffering humbles us. Twice Paul says, to keep him from becoming conceited. Because of these revelations, God pinned Paul to the earth with this thorn. He doesn't want Paul to get a big head. He doesn't want us to get a big head. These, these experiences could cause us to be boastful. And so the Lord lovingly and sovereignly allows affliction to come upon Paul for his good. You see, you see the passive voice here. A thorn was given to me. Scholars call this the divine passive. That is, God is the primary actor. Paul simply received the thorn. Now, we see in the text something very mysterious, but very important, I think, verse 7. Satan is involved. And yet, Satan's activity is sandwiched in between God's good purposes. So, who's responsible for this, right? Well, we just need to ask our question. Who wants to keep Paul from being conceited? Not Satan. He would love that. God doesn't want Paul to be conceited. So he can use even the devil, as Luther used to say, he's God's devil, in order to humble him. Now, there, suffering is a hard topic, and we cannot give a light answer, a thin answer. There's depth to it. There's complexity to it. 
as Christopher Ash, who's written a great book on the book of Job, says, God gives us a book on suffering that's 42 chapters to tell us you can't summarize this in a tweet. It's a big book because there's complexity. But one of the purposes we can see plain as day here in verse 7, suffering has a way of humbling us. And God here is sovereign and God is good and he's working in Paul even though this pain is real, even though it is right and good to pray for the Lord to remove it. He doesn't remove it. And he keeps Paul humbled to the earth. I received an encouraging letter a couple of weeks ago from a church member here. I won't drop any names, but it was tremendously encouraging. I prefer those letters to other letters. And, uh, and he knew I was, I was having a hard time. And so he he quoted um, a portion of Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher's biography. When Lloyd-Jones said he was going through a particular experience and he felt like it was satanic attack. And this is what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, in my opinion, God wanted to do something new to me. So he gave the devil liberty to attack me like he did Job. And we would say, and like he did Paul. That was a real satanic attack, Lloyd-Jones says, and the devil would get me right down, but then God would lift me up. So the two went together. And the biographer, Ian Murray, says, God permitted the sustained demonic assault in order to deepen MLJ's insight into the wiles of the devil and his knowledge of the only power which can counter such an adversary. God wanted to do something new to me. So he allowed this thorn to be given to me. We can't answer everything about suffering, but we know that God's purposes are good. And the suffering often humbles us and points us to the only power which can counter such an adversary. And you say, doesn't that seem a little harsh? God allowing this thorn to be in Paul's flesh? No, friends. There is something worse than your thorn in the flesh. And that's being destroyed by pride. You see, you only have a problem with that if you don't think pride's a big deal. There's something worse than the thorn in the flesh, and it is being ruined by your pride. So God, in his grace, allows the affliction to come in our lives, to humble us, to keep us from becoming too big-headed. Because it's so easy if you have ability or success or strength to be led into conceit. There are many sins I don't see in my life. But I know one thing is for sure, I am more proud than I want to admit. And so are you. So to crush our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, our conceit, our stubbornness, there is a thorn in the flesh. And that is a gift because pride destroys. That's one purpose. The second purpose, God uses suffering to draw us near to the Lord. Notice verse 8, Paul says, you know what I did when I got authority in the flesh? I prayed. I pled with the Lord. Some of us never pray until suffering comes. Suffering has a way of drawing us near to the Lord. And it, again, it is good and right to pray, even if you have a high view of God's sovereignty and believe that God may allow affliction to come your way, as we've been suggesting here. It's still good to say, intervene, remove it. And sometimes he does. But often he just gives more grace to endure. 
Either way, it's drawing you to him. Drawing you to him first, please remove it. Drawing him to you in an ongoing way, oh, please give me the grace to persevere now if you're not going to remove it. And this suffering makes us go to God, and that is the gift. And thirdly, suffering enables us to experience the all-sufficient grace and power of Jesus. Sometimes the Lord removes the thorn, and we praise him when that happens. But often, he doesn't, but he gives more grace. Paul experienced divine power, think about this, in ways that he would otherwise not have experienced if it weren't not for this thorn. You see, friends, the good news today, your thorn in the flesh is not a barrier to usefulness. It's the pathway for usefulness. It opens you up to the grace and power of Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives him words that are so awesome. My grace is sufficient for you, which is a roundabout way of saying to Paul, I'm sufficient for you, Paul. In your suffering, I am all that you need. I give you grace, which it comes with power. It's undeserved power, and it's given to us in our weakness. That Christianity is so upside down. This is so upside down from the super apostles. They would have never admitted one weakness. They're too braggadocious, too pomp, too, too showy. And Paul says, no, you guys got it twisted, man. It is in our weakness, in our conditions of, Lord, help. Lord, intervene, that God shows up in big ways. Your weakness doesn't disqualify you. No, it opens you up to his power. Paul mentions this already in the letter, didn't he, in chapter 1, when he says he had an experience so, so, uh, so difficult that he thought he was going to die. He says, I despaired of life. But that, he says, purpose clause, was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. You see, it's in the moments of weakness, in the moments of suffering, in, when we're in our lowness, when we feel incapacitated, as it were, when, we, when we're dealing with fears, that's where God loves to dwell. That's why he says in, in verse 9, I will boast in these weaknesses more gladly because the power of Christ rests on me when I acknowledge my need for him. It's when I'm acknowledging my need for him that he shows up. And he uses this word, rest, epikosnoo, that is this rich biblical word in, in the Old Testament for God's tabernacling presence. God rested in the temple. He rested in the tabernacle. And it's the same word in John 1. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Where is it that we experience the tabernacling presence of God today? It's in weak saints. Jesus pitches his tent in our weakness. He rests upon us. We experience God's Shekinah glory, his, the power of his presence in our weakness. Paul, Paul basically picks the richest word he could pick to say, ah, oh, this is where God loves to dwell in people who acknowledge their need for him, that they're not hot stuff. It's the humble saints who experience this divine power. So he says in verse 10, wraps it up, for the sake of Christ then, I am content. And the word content is not sufficient enough. It's a word that means to delight in. To, to be pleased with. I, I delight in my... He's not just saying I tolerate my weaknesses. I revel in them, actually. 
I delight in them. Right? We want to hide all weaknesses. Paul says, I revel in them because when I, when I mention them, when I talk about my weakness, God loves to dwell in my life. I experience his grace and his power. And he gives us, again, a, a wide range of weaknesses when he says the general word weakness and then insults. You know, that's a weakness. Being mistreated by others. You feel abused. You feel used. You feel mistreated. Can God ever use a person like that? Oh, yeah. God loves to dwell there. Or hardships, that is, trouble or pressure. You say, man, I feel pressured. Look to him. He loves to rest on those individuals. Or persecutions, when we suffer at the hands of others. Or calamities, when you're in a devastating experience. So in your limitations, in your troubles, in your pressure, when you're mistreated, when you're betrayed, when you're in a devastating experience, know that his grace is enough. His grace is enough. So I delight in him, he says, for the sake of Christ. It opens him up to the power of Christ and the blessings that follow. And he summarizes then verse 10, and he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. He has in mind here a perpetual state of weakness and a perpetual state of receiving divine grace. When I'm weak, I am strong. That's the proper mindset of those that God uses. So weakness is not an obstacle. It's a gateway to usefulness. In other words, you, you can be used mightily like the apostle as long as you don't mind Jesus getting the glory. As long as you don't mind people knowing that he's the impressive one, not you. It's in the weakness that we show forth the power and grace of Jesus Christ. So in all of our evangelism, our preaching, our service, our parenting, our work of mercy and justice, we want to live out of our weakness and into his strength. We want to rely on Jesus' dynamic power, knowing that he loves to rest on ordinary people. He loves to rest on unimpressive people so that we show the world that he's the real hero. And he is the real hero. This is the way, by the way, of our salvation. We'll look at next week in verse 4 of chapter 13. Jesus was crucified in weakness, but now lives by the power of God. That's the, that's the way of the Christian life. We live out of weakness into his power. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I just preach myself happy. It's good to preach yourself happy. I recommend it, by the way. I recommend it. Jesus paid everything to be our everything. May he be your everything. Father, we thank you for your word. Your grace truly is enough. Lord Jesus, may your power rest upon us as we confess daily our need for your grace and power. Keep us humble. May we see the real danger of pride. May we rest in your sovereign care. And while we know that you work in and through people with the thorn in the flesh, we do look forward to the day in which we don't feel the pain anymore. And now as we turn our hearts to the table, we're reminded of the great hope we have as we prepare to take it anew with you in the coming kingdom. Bless your church now as we continue in worship in Jesus' name. Amen.